This is a player, Mukhtar, who is in form and playing confident soccer. 16 combined goals and assists. Nashville goes over the top to Mukhtar inside the penalty area. Mukhtar, he scores! CJ Sapong barreling down in the final third. Pushes forward to Mukhtar, he scores! This is the battle cry of a contender! Welcome on into the Club and Country podcast. We are the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in the respective disciplines. I am Wes Bowling. Tim, not much going on in soccer this week, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's been very low-key, nothing going on at all. In, in Nashville especially, there's been nothing going on. But I am, I'm Tim Sullivan, the uh, proprietor of clubcountryusa.com and also uh, the namesake of this here podcast. And I think we're going to hit both ends of that pretty hard this week. Yeah, a couple of down moments for the U.S. men's national team, obscuring what was another banner night at Nissan Stadium for the boys in gold on Friday night. And you just heard a montage of Hani Mukhtar's brace, yet another brace for Hani, courtesy of ESPN 94.9. Great call by John Freeman and a little bit of prediction awesomeness for me. Call me Nostradamus <laughs> if you want. I am a blind squirrel, and every now and then I do find a nut. Uh, thanks to Moon Taxi for the music, as always. Nashville SC supporters celebrated one of the biggest results of the year Friday night, but then many of them were at Nissan Stadium and closed the weekend by pining for some Gary Smith-style stability mm. when their national team squandered a lead against Canada. You know what? Greg, I think, is still the guy for the job, but if Gary Smith is on that touchline, maybe Alfonso Davies doesn't break free. <laughs> maybe DeAndre Edlin is is uh, is keeping a little better track of him down that flank. Yeah, it's, it has not been a super good start to the hexagonal for the United States men's national team. I'm as... Uh, I, I think I'm probably developing a reputation for it. I, I kind of shoot down the middle a little bit until it's time to panic. I don't panic, and I'm I'm not panicking yet. But um, at least for the the combined Nashville and USMNT fans, there was a, a a start to the weekend that was a little better than the end to it. Another win over a playoff team at home for Nashville. That's four and seven tries at Nissan Stadium. Of course, they drew the other three and remain unbeaten. At home, another multi-goal performance on their home ground, where Nashville now averages nearly 2.5 goals scored per game. And Tim, really the first hint at an organic rivalry. Of course, geographically, you know, the proximity means that Atlanta and Cincinnati will, will always be rivals. There will be a flashpoint in each of those at some point, you would think. But after the first straight red in club history, you could feel some organic hostility between the Pigeons and the Boys in Gold. Yeah, th this club has everything to to quote Stefan from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> uh, Dax McCarty was a goal short of the Gordie Howe hat trick, and I imagine we'll be hearing about some supplemental discipline from the league heading in the direction of, of potentially Jander Cadiz and, and probably a small handful of NYCFC's players as well. We're going to get into all of it, the on-field performance, the on-field fracas, of course, the U.S. men's national team. In the early shout, we're going to hear from Hani Mukhtar in just a minute after his third brace of the season, and then our Gold Nuggets are going to dive into his form this year and how it stacks up relative to other players in Major League Soccer. Then we're going to have a little bit of a mashup. We got so many mailbag questions from you because, again, there's just nothing happening in soccer in Music City <laughs> uh, this this past weekend. There was nothing going on. So we're going to combine that with our Embrace Consensus and and have the, the deeper discussion of how concerned we should be about the U.S. men's national team after two matches. You're going to be maybe a little disappointed by a lack of panic from either of us about this, but there's still some degrees of disappointment that I think we can cover. Mm -hmm. How disappointed should supporters be? Heading into Honduras, which could, of course, define how a lot of folks feel heading uh, heading out of this first trio of 14 qualifying matches. Then we'll continue our mailbag by previewing the upcoming road trip for Nashville SC. And again, where where we love to, to reside is where we can combine U.S. coverage with NSC coverage. Should Walker Zimmerman have gotten the start on his home turf, would that have made a difference against Canada? And then an outside in, if you thought that the qualifiers uh, in CONCACAF were intense this weekend, I mean, they were in their own way, but not compared to a couple other crazy events happening around the world. And we're going to take you across the globe to discuss those briefly. But let's continue now with our early shout. CJ and me, we are good friends, first of all, and um, we have a good chemistry. I think it's a great combination between power fast, he's fast, he's strong. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm playing around him. Um, I love that position. Um, I think the coach knows that. And um, yeah, we, we, we try to work together because we know um, in this shape, most likely we are, the, we are the guys 
which needs to create chances and uh, score goals. So we tried to find each other and uh, it went very well the last, the last uh, weeks and months. Heine Mukhtar with two goals to fuel Nashville's 3-1 win over New York City FC. That's now 10 on the season for Hani to go along with eight assists. Another awesome night for the central midfielder for Nashville SC. And Tim, before we get into the, the gold nuggets and some of the factoids, it's clear that this 3-5-2 setup, 3-4-3, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it, suits him absolutely wonderfully, especially when he's able to combine with CJ Sapong. Yeah, I think it's hard to kind of divine how much of it is. Hani's just playing super well because he's playing super well. And how much is that this formation, this philosophy more than that, more than formation is, is getting the most out of not only him, but also CJ. And um, at, at times, Randall Leal obviously was unavailable for Nashville this weekend. But um, I think it's a situation where I don't necessarily know that you need to figure out what the answer is because Nashville's <laughs> not not losing Gary Smith and they're not losing Hani Mukhtar anytime soon. So it's a it's a positive situation right now. Let's tap into the analysis. You heard Hani just talk about that connection with with CJ. The brace against New York City FC, his third of the season. He now owns four of the seven all-time braces for the boys in gold. Six of them have happened this year. And, of course, one of those was a hat trick um, for Hani Mukhtar. The club only managed one brace last season. And, of course, it was Hani down in Houston. The perception is that Hani is a streaky player. This is a guy that was fighting to even stay in the 11 early, very Mm -hmm. early this season. But right now he's riding a hot streak. Um, Do the metrics support the numbers he's putting forth? Is there a degree of luck in this? You're always good at bringing the the common sense reality behind the results we're seeing. Yeah, well, I think it's hard to determine from the stats, like if you can kind of derive that he is or is not streaky because the the amount of noise in the data, there are so few goals scored in soccer mm-hmm. games. But a single, I mean, a single goal is, is a lot. That's a lot for a game. If a dude scored 34 goals, we'd be throwing a party for sure. So I think there are a couple ways to look at it. First of all, his 10 goals this year have come on 7.84 expected goals. And I think when you look at maybe... Um, what might be streakiness? I think kind of a little bit of luck to outperform your expected goals is part of what leads to that. And then if you look at some of the some of the kind of month to month variation in his performance, he had 1.25 expected goals and, and one goal in August, and nearly half that total on, on Friday night alone. So he's, he's already uh, on pace to smash that in September. Then when you go back another month, he had 3.02 expected goals and four goals in July, and then 1.27 expected goals and no goals in June. So he kind of is kind of alternating months almost to a certain extent. And that was very fortunate because it would have been a much bigger pain for me to figure it out if it hadn't been month to month variation for sure. But yeah, he, see, he does seem to get kind of hot and cool uh, alternatingly. Hot honey, cold honey right now. It is definitely hot honey. He now leads the team with 10 goals and eight assists and those 18 combined goal contributions rank him at the top of major league soccer. He's tied with SKC's Daniel Shallowy. And he's just ahead of stars like, I don't know, Carlos Heel, kind of a big deal this year. Nani, Tati Castellanos, of course, who just scored against Nashville. It is a performance, Tim, that is stacking up not just, of course, a top Nashville stack column, but a top Major League Soccer. Yeah, it sounds like a guy that maybe should have been an all-star, right? <laughs> but um, if you look at, I think, especially if you look at Carlos Heel, he's obviously been injured for a yeah. pretty significant portion of the season. So that's yeah. some of that. But yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance that Hani is going to start, uh, if he keeps up this pace, making some noise for for MVP. And it'll be interesting to see if that if he manages to have a real shout at MVP after being that all-star snub uh, just a couple weeks ago. Right. And, you know, I, th- I think, once again, you can forgive voters just a little bit for overlooking Hani, um, because he's not an established name on a team that necessarily gets um, as much national media coverage. But that's only half the equation. Bob Bradley chose a number of players as well. And mm-hmm. I think that the real unforgivable sin, if you're a Nashville supporter, was was adding Pizarro late from Miami yeah. instead of Hani in that spot. That was that was for the, the Mexican-American uh, yeah. appeal, for sure. But yeah, I think if had it been on merit alone, it would have been Hani over Pizarro for sure. The All-Star Game should certainly be considered a, a branding and attention-drawing exercise as much <laughs> as, as it should be rewarding players who necessarily always deserve it. But, but how is Hani getting it done? What do the underlying numbers tell us? Tim touched on that a bit with regard to XG. Let's give you a few more numbers that, that indicate really the scale, the scope that 
um, that Hani is is hitting right now. He ranks third in Major League Soccer in shots on target per 90. So he's he's obviously peppering the net with opportunities. That's a category that Randall Leal led for a long time early in the mm-hmm. season, but um, obviously being called away to international duty here currently and having you know just a bit of a regression there and, and not being in the 11 every time has has hit him just a little bit. Um, over the past 365 days, Hani ranks in the 94th percentile among all midfielders. When it comes to passes attempted, and he led Nashville in touches in Atlanta. And Tim, I think if I'm to to credit Hani with with anything amidst this resurgence, it is the meaning, the importance that he has to this Nashville attack has really grown as Nashville's moved into that three four three and three five two. There have been times where he's gotten lost on the pitch. He seems to be asserting himself and getting much more involved in the buildup. And I think that speaks to his confidence, but it becomes a, a virtuous cycle then. The more he gets involved, mm-hmm. the more confident he becomes. Yeah, and definitely. And we talked you know, a little bit earlier that it's, it's is it Hani? Is it the system? Is it everything? It doesn't matter because he is playing well. There, we also just mentioned that he's been streaky, so it might not be that way the rest of the year. There might be some slumps going forward, too. But at this point, I don't think Nashville SC fans are going to be upset at all uh, about the way the form is going right now. Honey has now scored 2.5 more goals than XG would suggest that he should have, and that's part of a resurgence in that category for the boys in gold. Remember, early in the season, they were strongly underperforming. Uh, and we said, you said especially, Tim, there, mm-hmm. there's going to be regression to the mean. They're going to they're gonna come back. They're going to make up for that. Or, or we should say progression, I guess, to the mean mm-hmm. in this case. And now the club, second in the league in um, outperforming XG, they've scored 3.7 more goals than the numbers tell us they should have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you look at when you look at how Hani has specifically been a big piece of that, I think the positioning in this new tactical approach is really important to what has allowed him to become as successful as he has been lately. Because he's higher up the pitch, he's a little bit more comfortable, doesn't necessarily have to get in those cage matches as much as he as he does as a true midfielder. And his scoring outbursts have coincided with games in which the Nashville attack regardless of whether or not he was in the lineup is performing really well. So it is something that like, it is another example of a virtuous cycle. The team is playing well because he's playing well. And then he plays better because they're, they're aiding him better too. And one thing we saw on Friday night that we had not seen um, in addition to strong form, which we have, but, but an own goal. That was the first own That's goal true. in the Nashville SC game. That is true. And, that is and, not what we're about to talk about. No, and you do feel bad, by the way. Let, let's talk about that, because Daniel Rios, for a moment, thought he had his second goal in his many mm-hmm. matches. Give him credit for putting in a dangerous ball. It was kind of a shot-slash-cross that Latinovich, mm-hmm. who'd only played five minutes in his Major League Soccer career, mm-hmm. uh, deflected right in. We talked about the, the impact that New York lacking its two starting center backs would have. Right there, there's your direct impact, but it all happens because Daniel Rios is putting himself in position to create a chance. Yeah, I'm certain when they drafted him uh, in the offseason, they were not expecting for, for Vuk to have to play a lot. Uh, <laughs> certainly not to, to start against a team that's a competitor for maybe the number two spot in the Eastern Conference either. First own goal, but also first straight red given to a Nashville SC player in club history. You may recall one red card has been given to a boy in goal. That was Alistair Johnston, who picked up two pretty quick yellows in Kansas City last year and led to a 2-1 loss. But Dax McCarty, after really the only the only uh, brawl is a really strong word to say here, uh, but the biggest um, flashpoint in, in Nashville SC history, 43rd minute, Maxi Morales contested Dax McCarty's drop ball. Tim, explain to us a little more what happened and your thoughts on the red cards that resulted from the fracas. Do you think they were fair? Yeah, so you have to actually even rewind it a little bit. Taylor Washington had taken a couple hard fouls, stayed down for a second after the first one. After the second one, he stayed down to the extent that there was the drop ball that you mentioned. Um, Dax McCarty has the drop ball at his feet. Morales goes in and, and swoops it up. And to be honest, that's fair because Dax had already touched the ball. I did not realize that watching it live, but um, Dax very much took issue with it and he went in for a hard tackle on Morales which is essentially what you would expect in that situation so it was probably yellow card worthy in a vacuum but the fact that it was the instigating factor that started a fight where Maxi Morales um, puts his hands around Dax's neck and a couple other NYCFC players come in and and join and and Nashville players join in a little bit as well mostly pulling guys away but a couple guys left the technical area which we'll get into in a little bit too so I think the Morales red card is is unquestionable I think there will Mm -hmm. probably be additional stuff coming down the pipe too I agree. I think by by tackle, by hard tackle, I think you mean football tackle more so than soccer tackle. <laughs> well, it's funny because it was it was supposed to be just like a hard tackle. You could tell, and then he kind of lost his balance, and then like Maxi <laughs> escalated it by grabbing his foot, and not letting him get away. It was, it was yeah. It, in a vacuum, it's a yellow. It, in context, yeah. I, the red is fair. 
I, I agree with you. I think because of what it became, I, I just thought maybe Dax had listened to our podcast last week and heard Jayon Brown and decided, you know, Hey, this guy's, <laughs> this Titans linebacker is a fan. I want to show him my tackling form. Maybe they can put me in, you know, all five, six of Dax McCarty. Nissan stadium tradition. Yeah. I think for me, the biggest issue was not the reds given. Uh, there will be punishment that, that will be levied after the fact that I think you have a hard time expecting the referees to give in the moment, mm-hmm. even after mm-hmm. looking at it. The issue to me was, was the failure to calm the game down earlier to yeah. give a yellow earlier on one of the hard fouls against Washington to intervene more strictly, to pull the captains aside and have that conversation. Whereas it was actually Dax chasing down referee Timothy Ford before all this even happened mm-hmm. after the first Taylor Washington hit and following him and protesting. Number two, you have to, to traffic control the drop ball. You yeah. have to set an expectation. If, Four New York players are surrounding Dax when he's taking the drop ball. That's not that's not what what this is meant to be. Mm-hmm. Work out whether or not it's going to be contested. Work out why it shouldn't be contested. Tell Nashville, this is yours. Go ahead. It's like Dax touched the ball expecting just to have clear space, and the New York players converged around him, and Morales took it away. You, as a referee, have a responsibility to diffuse the uncertainty of that situation mm-hmm. before it happens. He didn't do that. And I think he showed some inexperience in that regard. I said on the air at the time, there were two veteran Major League Soccer referees on that crew. One was the fourth Mm -hmm. official, one was the VAR official. I was wishing uh, that one of them would step in and assert some control because the main official was not. Yeah, well, one of those is is, uh, another official that was probably not popular among Nashville SC fans (laughs) just a couple weeks earlier. So who knows? You know, know, people have asked um, and will and will be answering a question about it. You know, why is the officiating so bad, essentially, in this league? And I think to to an extent, uh, it's as bad as it is everywhere. And it just feels worse because you have a a dog in the fight a lot of Mm -hmm. the time. But Mm -hmm. um, the reality is also that we need more talented officials and we need more guys working their way up more guys and women working their way up through the, through the licensing courses. And um, hopefully then there's a little bit more accountability and a little bit more competition for top refereeing gigs. And speaking of accountability, but with regard to players, we mentioned there mm-hmm. could be some retroactive discipline handed out. And, and you, I think, mentioned very fairly that a couple of New York players got involved and um, and committed acts that should should get them sanctioned. Mm-hmm. But a handful of players, a small handful, left the bench for NSC. Uh, tempting to do so because it's happening right in front of you, uh, but that does go against Major League Soccer's mass confrontation policy. You cannot leave the bench to get involved in uh, in a situation like this. Props to Jalil Anababa, who briefly left the bench to pull back those who had left the bench. But the rule reads, uh, quote, coaches, staff, and substituted players will be fined and or suspended if they leave the bench too. And there are a few conditions. One of them is to engage in acts of unsporting and or irresponsible behavior. Typically in the case of a first event, precedent would suggest a warning to the team, maybe fines for the individuals involved. There has have been suspensions in, in this case yeah. before, though. Yeah, I think there will be a warning to both teams for violating that mass confrontation policy that you just mentioned. Um, Jander Cadiz will probably be at risk of a suspension, but more likely a fine for leaving the technical area. He actually is the only one who truly went out onto the field from Nashville's technical area. I think both Tati Castellanos and Anton Tinnerholm should probably get a one-game suspension for actually participating in the fight. Um, both of them put their hands on, on McCarty's face. So that's that's one of the ones that's a surefire red card, you know, if it's caught in the run of play. So uh, as supplemental discipline, we'll see what happens but uh, those mls disciplinary committee decisions are typically released on thursdays so we'll find out in a couple days and i think nashville's probably planning uh, uh its game plan for for the weekend to say okay here's what we do if we do and if we do not have genre available and you know dex mccarty was was protesting on twitter after the match with a couple of cheeky he, tweets he, 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 went, he went back and deleted a bunch of those boys stand by it dax come on he did i you know it's not a not a not a smart move for the captain to do that but it, it was fun to see no chance that Nashville were to win an appeal of, of that red card, right? Uh-uh, uh-uh, I don't think so. Any chance he gets a three game for violent conduct? I would not imagine so, no. It was, again, like I said, the, the tackle itself was was a yellow, aside from the context that, that fairly escalated it to a red. And during the the so-called fight itself, he was kind of just a victim of the three of the three NYCFC players. And Maxi Morales was happy that it was Dax because that's the only player <laughs> whose whose neck he can reach up to to grab if he wants to grab the neck. So, yeah, it was definitely a, a featherweight fight between the five six and the five three. And, and it's inconvenient, of course, because Nashville will be without its captain in mm-hmm. Montreal. Traveling across the Canadian border has proven tricky for a lot of teams um, because of either vaccination status, which we're not privy to, uh, passport mm-hmm. status. It's always a little tricky, but especially this year and with with the restrictions Mm -hmm. that are in place. And yet Nashville goes to Montreal. 
inconvenient timing to to perhaps be not just a little bit shorthanded, but very shorthanded, depending on who's going to be available for that match. Yeah, and when you consider that the guys who are playing the final World Cup qualifier of the window on Wednesday, even if they are are healthy and, and ready to go, it's going to be hard to get Anibal Godoy from Central America to Canada. It, it, there's a lot of logistical stuff that goes into this too. And like you mentioned, the logistics have been a big issue at times for Nashville in the, in the lone trip, I guess, to, to Canada so far this year. But it's not an easy puzzle in the best of circumstances. And, and as the pandemic continues unfortunately it's it's even more difficult to to have that sort of logistical uh problem i guess you could mm-hmm. say puzzle let's call it a puzzle let's do puzzle puzzle's good bit of a bit of a jigsaw for sure uh and i think that's it's yet another example of why we should not view results in a vacuum in 2020 slash 2021 there are a lot of factors that, that lead into those and, and those circumstances don't always even out taking a look at montreal they are currently sixth in the eastern conference seven points back of Nashville haven't lost in four matches, couple draws, couple wins, uh, but three of those results came against teams that are below the playoff line. If you'll recall, they started the season playing down in Florida, hosting mm-hmm. their quote-unquote home matches there. Uh, since they've returned home, they are 3-0-1. Three wins, no losses, one draw at Stad Zaputo, but they have yet to host a team above the playoff line, so Nashville's going to be the best team that has visited their stadium uh, Tim, all that to say, what have we learned about this team since it played Nashville to the 2-2 draw in the second match of the season and then followed up with with another draw uh, later in the season? Yeah, I think fans were pretty despondent after the 2-2 draw. It felt like a, kind of a continuation of the FC Cincinnati draw. It just felt like Nashville didn't quite have it clicking. But now that we've seen that Montreal is actually a pretty solid team, it feels a lot less negative in hindsight. So that's pretty good, especially when you consider um, the way that Montreal has been able to overcome losing a coach shortly before the start of the season on the constant road games with their so-called home games being played in Florida. This is a pretty good team. And I think, yeah, the, the second draw, uh, you know, the set piece that that shouldn't uh, have have been a goal against Nashville in the absence of Walker Zimmerman. It's all these things coming together. You know, it's it's a really poor timing for Nashville mostly. But when you look at Montreal more more generally, what you really want to take note of is Georgia Mihailovic creating a ton of chances and Mason Toy finishing a bunch of chances. So the defense is middling, but slightly outperforming the expected goals against. So this is an offense driven team and those guys are doing most of the driving. And if you'd like a picture of how they're feeling about this match in Montreal, there is a level of fatalism there uh, and resignation to the inevitable disappointment of sports, which is, well, I can relate to it as a Tennessee football fan, quite honestly. Uh, but I, I sent a message. I said, hey, Nashville might might have trouble fielding 11 players to get up there after this you know, brawl and all this stuff. Of course, I'm joking. That's not going to be the case. But the response from a Montreal friend was, yeah, well, Nashville could probably beat us with nine right now. So despite the, the recent strong form, they are not feeling incredibly confident, at least <laughs> in, the, in the terraces at Saad Zaputo. All right, let's move on to embrace consensus, and we're going to combine it with some mailbag questions that you sent. Have a have a mash mashup edition, but the, the ultimate question we're going to answer on a scale of one to ten: How concerned should we be about the U.S. qualifying effort after two of their fourteen matches? Of course, it comes after a one-one draw at Nissan Stadium on Sunday night. Brendan Harrison got the scoring started in the fifty-fifth minute, but Kyle Laren uh, equalized just seven minutes later after Alfonso Davies absolutely blew past DeAndre Yedlin who was filling in for Serginho Dest, who had to leave the contest in the first half due to injury. So that's two points in two matches, the draw in El Salvador, the draw at home against Canada at Nissan Stadium, with Honduras up next on Wednesday. And there are a couple of of people who wrote in who kind of encapsulate the feelings about all of this on both sides. Aaron says, Why can't people realize that their desire to change coaches is entirely reflective of their anxiety over not qualifying last time and worry that we won't qualify again despite having 12 more games to play and being tied for third place. That's one side of it. Ryan Francescan responded, if our current run of form continues, at what point do we think about a coaching change? Tell me how long I should remain calm, please. Honestly, I need the advice. Admittedly, high expectations here. So, there's no coaching change happening. That's not the question we're asking here. Greg Berhalter is the guy. This is not a Jurgen Klinsmann situation. Having said that, after two matches, again, how concerned should we be about the U.S. qualifying effort right now? 
Yeah, I'm not I'm not that concerned yet. Obviously, the candidate game was less than ideal, but drawing at the road should be good enough in El Salvador, particularly if the home results get back to a historical standard too. They were not that way in 2018, which was far bigger than than Trinidad itself as, as except as an emblem of, of that failure, mm-hmm. but I, th- I actually think it's too early to even even put a number to it because we don't know what happens in San Pedro Sula on Wednesday night. I think that's really important. If you come out of this first window of World Cup qualifying with five points, it feels very different than coming out of it with two or three points. Yep. So I think if the if the team can get the job done in San Pedro Sula, it's it's going to really change the way people feel uh, at the end of the window. I think the end of the window is the first chance that you have to truly have an informed decision about how this is going. Obviously, so far, it is not ideal, but it, the panic button is not even an option for another couple of days at least. That's fair. I think getting a result in Honduras will be much harder than getting one in El Salvador would have been. We said last week uh, mm-hmm. getting a result in Honduras probably you know tougher than beating Canada at home as, yeah. as much as Canada's yeah. roster is better than, than that of Honduras. I, I think I'm a 3 out of 10 right now. I'm never, never one to press the panic button early. I'm always about stability. Uh, what, what concerns me is not the coach it's not even really necessarily the tactics right now it's it's a bit of a the, the adjustment that this team is taking it is a technically skilled group that has talent that can play and does play for the best teams in the world but that process has yet to turn into product and i think there are a couple issues with that i mean the team essentially beat el salvador in every category but goals that's the biggest yeah. cop out ever because it's the only one of course that so matters. yeah that, that one's the one that counts though that's the thing that that is <laughs> fairly important uh but if you look at process which often will predict future product the XG read 1.7 to 0.3. The problem was, amidst all that, the team only put two shots on target. Against Canada, the U.S. had 71% of the ball. Brendan Aronson, after the match, said it was kind of disappointing. They just didn't want to play tonight. They wanted to sit back against the U.S., which, honestly, a pretty smart plan. They limited the U.S. to just five shots. So process needs to turn into product. I think the team does need a bit of a better tactical plan, understanding that, that the game is going to be to try to keep those skilled players from breaking down their opponents. Uh, more aggressive posture and better finishing. I think you know this group is learning quickly that grit beats technical skill in CONCACAF. And mm-hmm. um, while hard to quantify, and while I'm not going to sit here and speak to players' effort, that's not what I'm doing here, there's just a certain ugliness you have to have to get into CONCACAF play. Mm-hmm. And this team seems to be a little bit short on veterans who have been through those battles at this point. Yeah, I think that's something that I've seen go around since the Canada game especially, but even since the El Salvador game is you have a lot of really, really talented players, but very few of them are like the star of their team. And very few of them are experienced enough to say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to be Christian Pulisic every time that I step on the field for the United States. And Christian Pulisic for Chelsea is kind of a luxury player for them right now too. So there is a situation where, yes, these guys play at some of the world's biggest clubs, but they do need a little bit more maturity and experience to, to have that translate to CONCACAF qualifying. Taking things in a Nashville direction, then John Cade says, who wouldn't have let the Canada goal happen, and why is it Walker Zimmerman? <laughs> uh, breaking down the play, it was John Anthony Brooks who got beaten. He was marking Kyle Lahren. He got sucked into trying to to cheat over and, and defend Alfonso Davies after Yedlin got absolutely smoked. Lost track of Lahren, who had about as easy a tap-in as you're going to have. So... Uh, fair question, except that, that Zimmerman was never going to be the guy to supplant John Brooks in the 11. John Anthony Brooks is uh, is a fixture. Would would Walker have stopped that? Maybe. Maybe he makes the adjustment that, that John Anthony Brooks didn't. But, but Brooks is a world-class center back in his own right. Maybe not quite as as mobile, but certainly, certainly, you know, a heady player who just had a lapse. So, you know, Zimmerman would have been the alternative instead to Miles Robinson. Robinson looked good in El Salvador. Um, and I'll ask you, Tim, what did you see from Miles in Nashville? Should Walker have started and might he start in Honduras or moving forward? Yeah, it does seem like Robinson has the edge over Zimmerman for that second CB spot. Obviously, he's played both games. So that's a pretty good uh, lens into Greg Berhalter's mind there, I guess. But I think Zimmerman's style is actually better complimentary to to John Brooks's style because Brooks is as you mentioned perhaps not the fleetest of foot but has mm-hmm. great technical skill Zimmerman is a super rangy super athletic obviously Nashville fans know it they see it you know every week except when he's on international duty yeah uh, he's a guy who is going to take some risks but he has the athleticism to cover for it Robinson is is a good athlete too but he's not he's not Zimmerman um, he, he's, he doesn't have quite the same level of, of athletic range that Zimmerman does. He's probably a little bit cleaner on the ball, which is very weird that kind of the United States men's national team zeitgeist has that flip. They say Robinson's a good athlete and Zimmerman's better playing the ball. I'm like, 
you guys watch these guys play in MLS? It's like the <laughs> literal exact opposite of, of, of what the scenario is when you yep. see them play. But, you know, the rotation for this first window, two trips to Central America is, is really tough. And I, I would have to think that after the amount that Robinson has played, even though he has played reasonably well, uh, Zimmerman's got to get his shout here uh, on Wednesday evening. Quickly, let's cover Alistair Johnston's performance, the other Nashville SE player to be on the pitch and actually was on the pitch and involved, uh, played the full 90 against the U.S. Your thoughts on the night he had? He just continues to get the job done for Canada. It's very different to what he does for Nashville. It's funny because now Canada is back to playing a back four as as, uh, the Nashville SC has gone to being a back three most of the time. But yeah, Johnston is kind of like I said, Zimmerman is what Zimmerman is. Johnston is what Johnston is, and that's impressive. There's there's no shame in being what Johnston is, but he's going to be a guy who likes to connect with the players, and he's going to be defensively sound enough, and he's going to be the sort of guy that's kind of an emotional leader for his team. And I think we saw all of that for Canada. More confidence. I, I tweeted this week. He just seems to be too young and stupid to understand he doesn't belong in these settings. <laughs> and I and I mean that in, in only flattering ways. He he shows up and it's like, hey, I'm here. I'm confident. Let's do this thing. Uh, Newton Domini reaches out. Hey, Newton. Good to hear from you. Uh, what lineup changes would you guys make for Wednesday's match? And more importantly, if last night's match was a movie, what movie would it be? All right, I'll take the first part. I want to see a reasonable amount of rotation because some of the guys in the squad are going to have tired legs. I just mentioned that I believe Zimmerman probably will and should start over Robinson. I also want to see Weston McKenney knock on wood a little bit back in the lineup. He was suspended for the Sunday evening game, violation of team rules, undisclosed at this point. And I think playing Brendan Aronson, who's a very good player, but maybe ill-suited to playing one of those number eight spots, I'd like to see him on the wing rather than centrally. I think that's the better fit for his skill set. Mm-hmm. And then uh, to answer the second question, my movie choice is Strange Brew because that's the, the most Canuck-centric film that immediately popped into my head when I saw the question. It's the most Canuck-centric film. Yeah. That's it. Close second, So I Married an Axe Murderer, probably. <laughs> uh, both of which are sitting on our DVD shelf because my wife is Canadian. And I would, uh, I would like to state, for the record, that So I Married an Axe Murderer rules. The movie is so good. It is fantastic. We have a piper down! Oh, he's all right. He's just pissed. <laughs> That's a Scottish, so I'm going to get on here. That was pretty That was pretty poor. Uh, but yeah, speaking of movies, if, if last night's match was a movie, what movie would it be? I think it's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. There was overconfidence in the ability to find what they sought. There was taunting from those from a French-speaking country. There were mild successes that led to much rejoicing. Uh, Milan Borjan played the role of the killer flying rabbit. <laughs> you didn't expect a lot of bite from him, but he provided it in a couple of key moments. And there was an anticlimax that felt like time ran out and they just kind of decided to stop filming. I think you know the U.S. would have loved to have played five or ten more minutes and it just kind of <laughs> yeah. died. So I think yeah. that all points to uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail with uh, the, uh, the partially at least French speakers standing atop the castle uh, gloating at the end. So who plays the Black Knight in this in this then? <laughs> Gosh. I mean, I, I, it's hard, I, hard to... Jandre Edlin? Yeah, so, <laughs> he had so no legs Death had a flesh wound, I guess. <laughs> I think it's I think it's Yedlin. He he was caught without legs uh, <laughs> in, in a key moment. He's he's seen worse. He's had worse. Only a flesh wound. Uh, C.J. Bush talks to the uh, you know, to the bigger narrative to use a tired word. After seeing the turnout at the World Cup qualifier yesterday, what odds do we give Nashville for being picked as a host city for the 2026 World Cup? Nashville is one of 23 cities across the three host countries that is in the running. Yesterday doesn't tell us much. I, I think the odds in my perception from my perception are still low just because of the other cities that are involved but i don't think the bid is going to get decided on a turnout to a world cup qualifying match every stadium is going to be full for the world cup so a a crowd at your stadium it could look good it can feel good but every stadium is going to be full it's not predictive you're going to have regional and global fans traveling in for that so for that reason it's the logistics behind the bid that are more important than you know support necessarily does it look great on tv to have one half of the stadium completely full yeah it's it's great for perception but ultimately it's your ability to handle and entertain large crowds throughout your city it's hotel space it's the alignment between city state uh private public necessary to to give in to fifa's lofty lofty demands and it's politics it's 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 political. I think my struggle is that this current mayoral administration, without getting too deep into politics either way, it ran on a platform of being less open to saying yes to everything. Mm-hmm. And therefore doesn't necessarily always have the internal infrastructure necessary to pursue and succeed in these types of situations. The draft was awesome. 
the Music City Grand Prix was fantastic. These things are still happening to a degree, but the World Cup is the biggest ask in the history of the city from a sports standpoint. And I, I just think it's a tall lift when you've got other cities not terribly far away who are also very strong candidates. Yeah, I think first things first, I agree with you that Sunday's game is just one tiny data point. It is a data point, but it's just one data point of a huge mountain of data in terms of what Nashville can bring to a World Cup bid. Um, I'm less bearish on the chance because Nashville is a city so reliant on tourism. And I think that it's become a place that people want to visit, not just from from outside of Cleveland, wherever they all come from (laughs) every weekend, but from around the world, people are interested in visiting Nashville. So that is one important part. But I think even if there aren't games here, it's likely that multiple teams make Nashville their training base. There's a big airport. There's going to be a bunch of great facilities by the time the World Cup comes around in 2026 when Nashville SC's facilities and their academy facilities are all up and running. Mm -hmm. A number of high-end hotels, which are obviously important for the teams to stay in. Those sorts of kind of tourism-centric things are, are again, why Nashville has become the city that it is and and why I think it will be, uh, it will have a role to play in the World Cup, even if it's not hosting games. Well, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, don't mistake my skepticism for a lack of passion on this issue because it hmm. would be awesome. And I'd put Nashville up against anybody when it comes to throwing a party and, and hosting just an, an awesome series of events, whether it's, you know, tied to teams being here uh, to train or whether it's tied to actual matches happening. Of course, the renovation of Nissan Stadium will also play a role in that, but that appears to be moving forward in a pretty promising mm-hmm. way. Uh, we'll just see if Nashville can put the alignment together to make this happen and uh, if they would have maybe painted pedal taverns to represent each nation in the in the World mm-hmm. Cup. Uh, moving on, John Mueller. First of all, John, before we get to your question, it was great to finally meet you in person at a tailgate before <laughs> the match Sunday. I, I'm buzzing right now, Tim. Honestly, we're recording this less than 24 hours after the U.S.-Canada match. Result notwithstanding, it was so awesome to get out there, have a beer or three with some folks, put some faces with names, and see some people I hadn't seen in so long. Neither you nor I really get to to tailgate a whole lot before matches, and uh, it's tremendous to get to to be fans and and mingle a little bit. Uh, so, John, thanks for uh, for saying hello. Um, he asks, "Is there ever a genuine consequence for bad officiating in the U.S.?" Two more questions from him. How long until I can get right, rightfully get antsy about the minutes Akiloba isn't getting? And in your roles as both fans and media, what are ways in which both can improve here in Nashville? Tim, I'll, I'll let you take whatever you want to take there. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the official one. So if a bad performance evaluation comes in from PRO, which is the Professional Referees Organization, officials do get worse or fewer assignments if they don't grade out well. Obviously, that sort of discipline is never made public. You would hear about it if it, if it were. So there are only so many officials licensed to, to participate in officiating MLS games, much less how many are, are capable, I think. Uh, there, we see that it's not a Venn diagram that's just one darker circle, mm-hmm. unfortunately, at times. So you're unlikely to see even a howler of a performance, get anyone completely frozen out. But yeah, there is there is some kind of like behind the scenes discipline and it's, it's you might not consider it super significant. I think, I think PRO will like, even if a guy is a licensed and all that sort of stuff, like demote to USL games, if they, if they grade mm-hmm. out poorly enough. So yeah, it can, it can affect the pocketbook for sure. And if you look at Tim Ford, I mean, he's worked 30 games now over four years. That is a, a pretty low rate compared to, to others. So, I mean, it could be that, I mean, he's you know, still a relative. He's, he's not like a photos Pizzacco as you see him out there every weekend. Jair Marufo. It was weird. <laughs> we, we get the, Rosendo um, Mendoza, most Rosendo's important of them all, all over the place. Of course, Silvio Petrescu. It's like it's like this cast of characters. Like, oh yeah, it's this guy. It's this. And this yeah. is the first time all season that that we've gotten the the match sheet, and I've not recognized the the referee's name, mm-hmm. and uh, may not may not referee uh, Nashville again anytime soon. <laughs> um, based on that, I, I think that's it. I mean, you know, the busiest refs have called fifteen matches this season alone. One yeah. of them's even called seventeen. He's called thirty over four years. I think it was a case of Nashville just getting a guy who's still. Maybe gaining experience and, and prestige. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as to the Akiloba question, you know, how concerned should you be? No sweat yet, just maybe a little warmth. Kind of like, you know, you step outside in September to mow the lawn and the first five minutes, how you feel, right? You, you can feel the warmth coming, but the heat's not up just yet. Don't sweat it just yet. Mm-hmm. Number one, match fitness. He's basically in, still in preseason when it comes to his fitness. Coming into a club midseason, mm-hmm. an in-form scoring club, it's yeah. incredibly difficult to get the reps that you need and the conditioning that you need. And then would you make the change right now? I wouldn't. No, I, no of course not, no. I mean, you know, even Rios coming in and, and, and thriving. Of course, CJ doing mm-hmm. what he's doing. 
you cannot break up Hani and CJ. That only leaves one spot, and you're going to give it to a guy who's in shape. Yeah. That's yeah, it. and Gary has been very, very open about the fact like, hey, I love Ake Loba. He's going to have a huge role to play for this team. He's just not ready yet. He came from the Monterey team where he um, didn't necessarily get it uh, demoted, but he was not playing as frequently towards the end of the year as he mm-hmm. had been earlier in the season. And it was the offseason um, between the the Clausura and the Apertura. He had been literally not not playing for, for a f- few weeks, maybe a couple months. Yeah. I know it's I know it's very it makes you very antsy to to see Nashville spend this money and not have him play. But I think the reasons that he's not playing are are very explainable and very understandable. Absolutely agree Um, to the third question. Advice for fans and media. I think, you know, I'll start I'll start this out by saying that I have no interest in criticizing individuals or groups and I'm not going to criticize anybody today, um, even at a general level. I'll, I'll point to areas of opportunity, though, as the game grows in this town. I think people mostly are doing things really well, but but there have been some some issues, especially from a media side. And when I say media, I'm not referring to those who cover soccer day in and day out. I'm, I'm speaking to the larger group that, the, you know, sports talk radio, local TV, you know, newspaper, although Drake Hills does an awesome job for the Tennessean. Uh, number one is to be curious. If you're not an expert in the sport, that's not expected, and that's okay. You don't need to be the smartest person in the room. Be curious and interested in learning. Because I think some tend to jump in with, with strong takes and opinions that are just they're totally missing the mark, and they're running headlong into a brick wall as a result. Number two is to advance the conversation, even if you aren't a tactical wizard. I think part of that curiosity is is learning the sport, understanding that it might always be your sixth or seventh favorite sport, but that there's a growing audience that deserves that service and that you will do mm-hmm. your own outlet of service by, by growing the conversation. I look at what Willie Donick did with the Nashville Predators. I mean, this guy played what baseball for, I'm sorry, basketball for Vanderbilt. He played a sport for Vanderbilt that was not hockey. And when the Preds came to town, he decided uh, yeah, to become the, how the, are the hockey doors, guy. How are the doors doing on the ice lately? <laughs> Pro- sure probably to relative to their competition better than the doors are doing on the football field. Uh, we will say that. <laughs> but yes, exactly. He came from a totally different place, totally different world. And he adapted hockey. And now he is the play-by-play voice. He is an exceptional voice for you know about that team. I'll point to a guy who's done that with soccer, and that's Chase McCabe. Um, Chase is a friend. Chase engineers our broadcasts on 94.9. Chase will tell you he knew very little about the game of soccer this time last year. Mm-hmm. And he has sought to learn it. He's become one of the number one voices on 1025, 94.9, talking about soccer, advancing it, doing interviews, booking interviews with, with everybody you can imagine around the club. Uh, because I think he understands it serves him as well and his his growth as a professional in this market, but it also serves that growing audience. And And finally, I think there's this tendency from some local media members, a very small minority, to say, look, the interest isn't there yet to justify me giving this a segment or giving this, you know, more than just an occasional mention unless there's a huge off-field story tied to it. I would say your role in part is to fuel interest for that sport, not to market for the team, not to try to sell tickets, but to build the audience because you can become a self-fulfilling prophecy either way. You can say there's no interest and then by refusing to talk about the sport, you're going to fail to generate that interest, you're going to fail to grow your listener base, at least in one area. Or you can say, hey, there's enough interest to justify some conversation. Let's find some of the more compelling stories around this club and let's tell them it's not going to be the Titans. That's okay. It's not going to be the Preds. We're not asking you to give three hours to this. But I think those who have done well in this market talk about the sport and they don't just talk about whether they should talk about the sport. <laughs> I think you know they'll they'll grow an audience that that is growing. This is the growth stock that's at, at two dollars a share right now that's going to go up fast you can buy in pretty quickly by giving just a little bit of your your time and investment before i get to fans any thoughts on on things from a media standpoint from your end no i think you i think you pretty much covered it the biggest thing to me is is be willing to do it because i think a lot of people soccer has not always been the most popular sport in nashville tennessee probably will never be the most popular sport in nashville tennessee but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, because you didn't grow up playing it or, or knowing it, that that you don't have anything to say about it. I think mm-hmm. obviously you don't want. I don't want to see media members, you know, breaking down tactics if they don't understand what they're doing or something like that. But but being willing to 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 be wrong about some stuff, be willing to to talk about it in whatever sense, because that's far more the the act of doing it is far more important than than necessarily um, you know making sure you're 100 ready or you're fully invested in soccer and knowing exactly everything about it. Like you mentioned, there are people who kind of have found their lane who have done a really good job of that. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I would point to both radio stations who both have dedicated soccer shows um, that, that are very good. There are podcasts in town, of course, if you want to go deep with, with some of the diehard, you know, media who've covered this from the beginning, like this one. But uh, I think mainstream media will do well to play the long game and say, in 10 years, what soccer going to be here? And where do I want to mm-hmm. be positioned? Um, and I think thinking of it that way, instead of, is there any interest now? Should mm-hmm. I even talk about this? We'll take them to a better place. And that takes us to the fans because Tim, there there have been some mistakes in coverage, and we've seen some comments by media just get pounced on by by supporters. And and many of you are in our audience. We appreciate the passion that you have, and you're our base. So again, I'm going to sit here and identify opportunities to help this thing grow, not criticize anything that's happened before. I, I think number one is to appreciate all coverage, even if there mm-hmm. are mistakes all good faith coverage. There are some snarky comments that are just thrown out there just to inflame and those should never be rewarded. Uh, They should be ignored. I think drive-by self-gratification should Mm -hmm. be ignored in not just media, but in politics in so many different areas of of our society. But, you know, if there's a good faith effort that that results in some factual errors, this is the opportunity to educate and not be gatekeepers. And I think that's something that the soccer community, not speaking to Nashville necessarily, but the broader soccer community has been accused of. And, you know, a football fan, a huge Titans guru says, well, why would I even want to try? Because if I call it soccer or not football, I get my hand bit off. Well, we know that's not the case, but but that's the perception because fans often want to correct and and you know pushing pushing like my sport cover my sport and then you get the coverage and you jump on you know an error and call somebody stupid not that you guys have done that but just generally speaking it's not productive it's not going to encourage those media members to go out and take those chances that that you and i both agree they should take yeah i think the number one thing for fans to do is is rate review subscribe and tell a friend about this podcast well, of course, of course. <laughs> um on a, on a more serious note but, th- but i am Joking, but serious about that. I think the biggest thing that fans can do to to help support media covering soccer in the city is to consume what is produced. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, for obvious reasons, get frustrated when people say, "Oh, there's no soccer coverage in this town." I'm like, "This is this. I do this every day. Come you find can it. Read what? I, yeah, you can read what I write, and that's not." You know, it's, it's not necessarily a matter of, you know, I'm, I'm doing it right and I'm, I'm perfect all the time and all that sort of stuff. Like you mentioned that people, people make mistakes and, and I'm among them, but I think if people aren't consuming what is produced, there is no incentive for the Tennessean to give Drake um, more more uh, word space to, to write. Um, there's no incentive for one of the radio or TV stations to dedicate you know, a, a four or five minute segment in every news broadcast of the soccer team, unless they see that there is an audience for this stuff. And I think Nashville SC fans can kind of say, hey, it's time for us to prove that there is an audience. And I, you and I know that there is one, but I don't necessarily know that maybe the, the broader mainstream media in this town is, is always aware of that. This sounds like a pitch for one of us to go on lamestream sports on Fridays <laughs> on the 440 Sports Network and get deeper into this issue. We'll see. That was pretty shameless there. Back to the field for one more question. Payancito23 asks, why are they taking us to Canada and then South Florida? Someone wants our guys to catch a cold. <laughs> uh, of course, the trip uh, goes Montreal, Toronto, then down to Inter Miami before uh, going to Chicago. And you know what? If a cold is all they catch these days, that's uh, that could be considered a win. Tim, it is the longest road trip of the season for Nashville Soccer Club, but those four opponents, right now on the table at least, rank sixth, tenth, eleventh, and last. Fair to expect a couple wins from this stretch. Yeah, I think so. TFC is a different animal at home than they were before uh, being able to return to Canada and play their home games back at BMO Field. And to some extent, Montreal is is a different team too, but they started from a much higher point. But Chicago has been iffy at best, regardless of location. They're playing a bit better lately, and they do play a little bit better at home, but they are a team that Nashville should be able to handle. And I think they're going to want some revenge to go down to Miami and say, hey, you guys really embarrassed us honestly that was not what we were looking forward to so let's see if let's see if we can uh, give some payback i think there are two games here that you need to win there's one that you certainly want to win and there's one win a point can feel almost like a win uh you, you need to beat toronto it's a, it is a team that's tougher at home and we saw that when nashville visited here semi-recently uh, but they've lost four straight uh, now, before they play Nashville, they'll have Cincinnati and Miami. So chances are they will have at least gotten some something out of those those matches, and maybe a little more a little more confident. I think it's a, it's a game you need to win just based on their their form and and where they've been, and and the fact that you know you feel like you probably could have done that the first time around. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, Miami's your other one. You just need to win. Um, it's a Miami team. 
that's making a push right now. This is not your um, your older brother's Miami, <laughs> at least right now. At least they've won three of their last four. Um, they're looking to uh, Nashville, looking to avenge that road shock in early August that you referenced. I think that's one you just you need to go win as much for psychology as for the points uh, themselves. Mm-hmm. You want to beat Chicago. The fact of the matter is they've been one of the worst teams in Major League Soccer this year, but at the moment they've lost just once in their last eight at Soldier Field. They've earned results against NYC, D.C., Orlando, and Philadelphia in that stretch. So, you know, four four playoff teams, uh, that three of whom will certainly be playoff teams when all is said and mm-hmm. done. You want to win that game, but you understand if it's one of those that you say, eh, it's a team we're better than, we killed them at home, but it's a point. I think you're fine with a draw in Montreal. You're going to be without your captain. We talked about the travel challenges. Um, there may be some preemptive rotation as well as as you're looking at, at a stretch of four games in a in a short time period. So that would add up to eight points from the next four. That'd be a great total. Two points a yeah. game. This is sounding like some uh, before this World Cup qualifying window opened. <laughs> nine pointers. <laughs> That's why I also included a floor this time. Uh, unlike <laughs> last week when I think we both said you know seven points would yeah. be optimal from from World Cup qualifying in three. Eight for the next four is a great total. It would also get Nashville in the neighborhood of securing a playoff spot. You look at that 45-point mm-hmm. range as, as what that takes. They're at 38 right now, so that would get them actually above that that line. But I don't think we're, we're going to see eight points from this. I think a practical expectation is a little more like five. You win one yeah. of these, you draw a couple. There's, there, there's probably going to be a disappointing loss in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, Nashville's two losses this year have come on the road against non-playoff teams. So we shouldn't look at this and say three of these teams are, are below the playoff line. These are automatic. They're just not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned being close to securing that playoff spot. Uh, they haven't secured a playoff spot yet, but New England has sealed a finish ahead of Toronto FC. So that's the first in the league, the first sealed position. So New England cannot finish last in the East, and Toronto cannot finish first in the East. Toronto's not going to win the Supporter Shield? Are you serious? Uh, they, they were in it until the end last year, too. It's a bummer. That's true. They were until, until literally shield, the last shield day. Shield to spoon uh, is quite the transition. Shield to spoon is painful for those in the, in Toronto for sure, and they'll have to to eat their poutine with that uh, that wooden spoon. Well, it's more <laughs> of a Montreal thing, but they serve it in Toronto, Toronto as well. Uh, let's take things outside in. Just a couple things to discuss here, um, and they're way outside in. One's in South America, one's in Africa. A reminder that Concacaf qualifying feels pretty crazy, pretty bizarre. Until you go to South America, until you go to Africa, and you see so many of the other major things happening. Brazil and Argentina, if you've not read up on what happened here, if you're listening to us, you're, you're, you <laughs> probably have. Um, Brazilian health officials marched onto the pitch after the match started between Brazil and Argentina and tried to detain four Argentine players for breaking quarantine rules. It has been reported that that Conmebol agreed with the Brazilian government that the match would be played and Brazilian health officials tried to overrule that. It sounds like maybe uh, uh, the suspension of the match is going to turn into a Brazil forfeit and three points for Argentina here. Mm-hmm. Potentially, uh, just just really a wild wild day in the marquee matchup that everyone's looking forward to see in South America World Cup qualifying. It's it's always weird because like Brazil and Argentina are going to play in the World Cup, so it's it's a big <laughs> rivalry match, but it's like kind of inconsequential to the competition that yeah. they're participating in. But yeah. Yeah, just the crazy scenes of like dudes rushing onto the field trying to detain players was, was unbelievable. Yeah, I think it's a hold my beer moment for anybody who thinks that you know folk, the things in North and Central America are, are wild. They they can be, but it's a whole other level. And and then getting into you know a, a political situation overshadowing soccer. Morocco had to escape Guinea uh, over the weekend as they were getting set to play Guinea, and uh, a coup occurred. Uh, at least an attempted coup. We'll let others sort out the you know the political <laughs> details of that and what ended up actually happening there. Nonetheless, soccer did not end up happening. The Moroccans are safe, but there was just wild video uh, from an Instagram story of the team bus going through the streets of people who were rejoicing military in the streets as well. There were yeah. gunshots being fired all day and um, as they were not terribly far from the presidential palace in um, in the capital of Guinea. Yeah. Just, just wild. And that's, it's reminiscent of, I believe it was the... Uh, Dominica team in Haiti shortly before mm-hmm. Haiti's coup earlier this year. Similar situation. Um, obviously, it's it's never preferred to see that sort of stuff. You would like to see uh, peaceful transfers of power around the world. But uh, yeah, it's crazy that and that's the sort of stuff that um, is, it happens in, in this region and it happens in other regions. And uh, it's, I guess, just part of the fabric that makes this sport so interesting in the first place, too, because it is about kind of the global nature of the game that that no other sport really has no it's there's no other better better window into the the geopolitical world culture 
history, all of that, and which is why we thought this bore mentioned just briefly on the show. You can obviously go elsewhere for more detailed coverage of that, but um, just a bit of perspective, I think, that it that lends to what's happening here. Final whistle now, um, content recommendations. We skipped last week because I needed to brag about uh, our fantasy league. Getting back <laughs> to it, I'll recommend a, a podcast through the Total Soccer Show Network, a couple of athletic writers who you guys may know well, Paul Tenorio and Sam Stasekul, have the show Allocation Disorder. Uh, I've recommended a couple others in that in that network and, mm-hmm. and other athletic folks, but this one I think is one of the better spoken word ways to break down the dynamics behind how the league operates. If you like mm-hmm. the um, sometimes asinine, always intricate details of, of um, things like you know, allocation order, allocation money, all the, the crazy roster rules that are there. These guys will help you navigate that in a, in a way that you feel like you're sitting at the bar talking to your nerdy friend about it. Um, you can you can go to clubcountryusa.com. Right What's that? <laughs> I feel seen. <laughs> I mean, you, this that's also what we are and what you bring here, of course, as well. So they'll, they'll do it on a league-wide level. They're talking U.S. men's national team um, as well right now. and it's It's good stuff, Tim. I think, you know... The, those conversations probably would have and were happening in, in bars in Nashville among a lot of that audience. Um, <laughs> maybe you were part of that as well, but it's just, it's good stuff. Yeah. And you went that whole spiel about it without noting that they are very funny guys too. They are often having a cocktail and they will talk about it, but certainly I think at times you can tell that they're having a cocktail uh, to, to put it one way, but uh, yeah, no allocation disorder is awesome. My recommendation is actually going to be very simple. All right. Have you ever heard of the, the FIFA video game? I'm not familiar with it. What's FIFA stand for? I'm not sure. Oh, I actually don't know. I don't know French. So it's Federation Internationale. I don't know how to speak French. Um, but yeah, I think we kind of get lost in the weeds of, of trying to find the next thing. And FIFA is the game that gets a lot of people in this country into soccer with mm-hmm. who don't know about it. As much as I like reading a book, as much as I like inverting the pyramid and, and things like that, just enjoying the game by being able to play it and not, not necessarily in a way that you're out on the field running around, which is also preferred, of course. But I think it, it kind of almost takes you back to the roots and be like, this is, this is what I like is, is the sport itself. It's mm-hmm. so fun. It's also a really good way to learn about tactical stuff, about some of the formations and stuff that we obviously get pretty deep into the weeds on uh, this space. But yeah, I, I'm. It's it's obviously the most obvious recommendation that that we could possibly make. But I I will make it nonetheless. John Brown talked about that last week on the show. How that's how he fell in love with the game. He chose mm-hmm. PSG as his FIFA team and never looked back. Uh, bold predictions for Nashville and Montreal. I'll start and say that if you see an over under of one point five on this one. I'm not a betting analyst, and, and I don't bet, but I would take the under. Uh, I think this is a 1-0 type of game. I think uh, maybe even a scoreless draw. Montreal's actually scored and allowed quite a bit of, uh, of goals in a lot of matches this year. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, I think Nashville looks at the six points it earned between those Atlanta and New York matches where it would have been pretty happy with four. It says, look, go up there, don't lose. Don't give yeah. three points away to a Montreal team that's lurking seven points back in the standings and take a point. Take your moments to try to win the match. But I think, you know, you're looking at, at maybe 10, 11 shots max. You're looking at not a lot of opportunities, I think, for this team, unless Montreal just really goes for it and Nashville sees some opportunities on the counter. So I think take the under. I don't know if it's scoreless or 1-0, but I think it's one of those two scores. Yeah, mine, I'm going to first, obviously, as, as everybody knows, I, I make a little more predicty uh, of actual score sometimes. This time, I'm going to start with there will not be a set-piece goal in this game. We've hmm. obviously seen a ton of them for and against Nashville over the course of the summer, including in the second Montreal game, the the goal was a, a corner kick headed home by uh, Struna. Yeah. Alias Struna, Kiki Struna. Um, there we go. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been a bugaboo and I, I don't expect Walker Zimmerman to be available. And obviously we kind of have, have held him up as the, as the thing that prevents Nashville from giving up these set piece goals. Mm-hmm. But even if he doesn't make the trip to Canada, as he finishes up his men's national team duty, I think the boys in gold both hold Montreal off of the score sheet, at least on set pieces, but they don't answer with a set piece either. And I think it will be a draw. I don't know if it's a 0-0 or a 1-1, but I'm with you that it's going to be on the lower scoring end, to say the least. Stats can be deceiving sometimes, and I went all in on talking about NYCFC last weekend as you know, second best team on set pieces in Major League Soccer, which they are. It's factually mm-hmm. accurate. 
Also, five of those set-piece goals came in the same match against FC Cincinnati. (laughs) (laughs) And two Uh, of them were own goals, too, right? That's true. That's that's correct. Uh, So, you know, props to Nashville for for not conceding a (laughs) set-piece goal to NYCFC. And I think they'd certainly be happy to see that trend continue. And we would be happy to hear you, to see you come back and, and give us a listen next week. We also want you guys to do us a big favor. Go on Apple Podcasts and just give us a quick rating. If you're feeling really generous, review the show. Tell us what you think, whatever it is. And if it happens to be good, then maybe, you know, go at a little extra. But that really helps us be be found. It helps elevate not only us, but the 440 Sports Network. Tell a friend. Give us a follow on Twitter. Thanks to the 440 Sports Network for airing us, as always, and to ESPN 94.9 for John Freeman's radio highlights. And to Moon Taxi for the music. Tim, big plans for the rest of your Labor Day here as we record on Monday. No, but I'm just going to go rate, review, and subscribe to this show. You're going to rate your own show. <laughs> That's one way to do it. <laughs> As you do that, we'll give you a week to do it, and we will talk to you next week. So long. <laughs>